thanks for tuning in this week to Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church plant located in the Pasadena area. It is our mission to save the lost, to equip the saved, to serve both the lost and the saved, and finally to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting from the beginning of a book and working our way through all the way till the end. It is our prayer that you would grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ through His Word. Opportunity to do something that you really wanted to do, but then it really didn't go your way. It didn't go the way you wanted it to go. Perhaps you finally got that opportunity to come before your boss and give him that proposal that you've been waiting for, hoping, hey, this is going to give me a promotion and a pay raise, and you know, you prepare and you present it, and you're hoping everything goes well, and your boss hates it and he fires you. Or perhaps you get up the nerve to ask that girl to prom that you've had a crush on since your freshman year of high school, and you come up with this great idea to do it in front of the whole gymnasium during a basketball game, and you're thinking, oh, this is going to be so great, and she says no, uh, and you're completely and humiliated. Or perhaps you've been asking your dad for years to drive that really nice, expensive sports car that he has, and he keeps telling you no, no, no. And then finally, he says yes, and you're all excited, and you get your friends, and you pile in, and you're speeding down the road, and then you smash into a tree and total his car. You know, these types of situations are extra hard to deal with because you, you know, had this opportunity and you've had this thing that you wanted so much and you finally get that opportunity to do it and you have this expectation of something great happening and instead of something great happening, something horrible happens. You go from this big high of what you wanted to this horrible low of what actually transpired. Now I bring this up because the last time we were in the book of Acts, this is the situation that Paul found himself in. He finally gets the opportunity that he had been waiting over 20 years for. He's been desperate for it. He's been so longing for it. He's been willing to go through suffering and chains and tribulation and even death to experience it. He finally gets this opportunity to share the gospel with the Jews in Jerusalem. And while he does it, he shares his testimony. He's excited. I finally get this opportunity. I'm doing it. I'm sharing the testimony. And as he starts to speak, we're told that the Jews in Jerusalem, they're quiet, they're listening intently, things are going well, he's sharing about how God has worked in his life, how God has transformed him, how God revealed himself to him, and they're listening, and he's excited, he's finally got this opportunity, it's going well, and then all of a sudden in his testimony, he shares about how God sent him to the Gentiles instead of to the Jews. And right there, he loses his audience. And as I've noted many times, the Jews were very prejudiced against the Gentiles, and they didn't like the idea that God would send Paul to Gentiles instead of to Jews. And so right when he mentions that, boom, they stop listening. And not only do they only they stop listening, they have a pretty harsh thing to say. They say, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he's not fit to live. So it goes from this great opportunity of, oh, I'm sharing the gospel, they're listening, this is so good, to, we're going to kill you. Uh, Obviously not the response that he wanted to hear, not the way in which he wanted things to transpire. He wanted them to come to know Jesus, to accept the gospel, but they reject that, they reject him, and now they want to kill him. 
So that is where we left off last time we were in the book of Acts. And this morning we're going to continue here in Acts chapter 22, starting in verse 23. And let's see what happens to Paul. They want to kill him. You know, so what's going to transpire? Uh, let's take a look. Verse 23 says this. Then as they cried out and tore off their clothes and threw dust in the air, the commander ordered him to be brought into the barracks and said that he should be examined under scourging so that he might know why they shouted so against him. And as they bound him with throngs, Paul said to the centurion who stood by, Is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? When the centurion heard that, he went and told the commander, saying, Take care what you do, for this man is a Roman. Then the commander came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman? He said, Yes. The commander answered, With a large sum I obtained this citizenship. And Paul said, But I was born a citizen. Then immediately there were, then immediately those who were about to examine him withdrew from him, and the commander was so, uh, for, also afraid after he found out that he was a Roman, because he had bound him. The next day, because he wanted to know for certain why he was accused by the Jews, he released him from his bonds and commanded the chief priests and all their council to appear and brought Paul down and set him before them. So the Jewish crowd is surrounding Paul, and they're super upset because Paul said, God sent me to the Gentiles, and they're saying, away with Paul from the earth, for he's not fit to live. They cry out, they tear their clothes and they throw dust in the air. You think, well, why do they do these things? Well, in the Jewish culture, this was a symbol of things that were very bad for Paul. Crying out, tearing their clothes, throwing dust in the air was just that, you know, they were uh, signs of disgust and anger towards the person that they were directing that to, which is Paul. And so they're ready to kill Paul now. And, and I want you to try to imagine what this would have been like from the Roman uh, commander's perspective. Because remember, Paul says, hey, can I have the opportunity to address this crowd? And he gives him the opportunity to address the crowd, and I'm pretty confident that this guy didn't speak Hebrew, and Paul is speaking in Hebrew, so all he hears is a language he doesn't understand, and right when Paul starts speaking, this angry mob goes silent, and they listen, and he's thinking, wow, I wonder what this guy's saying, and he starts sharing more and more, and this crowd's still intently listening, and all of a sudden, this crowd goes from quiet to irate, and they're saying, away with this man, we want to kill him, and I'm sure this Roman commander's like, well, what is going on? What is it that Paul has done? And so they grab Paul, and now he has him, and he wants to know what is going on. Now, you got to understand, one of the main jobs of the Roman commander was to make sure that there was peace, that there was no rioting among the Jews. That's why he was there. And so there's about to be a riot. The Jews are all up in arms, and so his job is to make sure this doesn't transpire. So he grabs Paul, pulls them away from them, and he wants to know what it is that Paul has done. And so he does what the Romans often do. He orders that Paul should be examined under scourging so they can find out what Paul was accused of. To be examined under scourging is not something that you would want to happen to you. It is an interrogation method using torture to find out what's going on. Scourging was a brutal way that the Romans would torture individuals, one for a punishment for a crime, or others like we see here, just to get something out of you uh, and, you know, they used what is called a 
flagrum. As you can see from this picture, the flagrum had several leather cords, and, and within it, it had bits of bone and rock uh, and metal attached to it. And the purpose was to cause more pain and suffering, because if you just got hit by the leather, you know, it would leave marks and it would be painful. But because these things were attached to the leather, when it hit your skin, it would grab hold of your skin. And when you pulled back, it would rip chunks of your skin off. And this was so brutal that if you got whipped enough, it could kill you. Uh, and so this is what they were about to do to Paul in order to get information from Paul. But because this was so brutal, any Roman citizen could not have this done to them unless they were found guilty of a serious crime. You were never allowed to just do this in order to get information to someone who was a Roman citizen. Now, if you weren't a Roman citizen, you pretty much had no legal you know, things that... You know, protected you. So, you know, this Roman uh, commander probably thought, hey, this is just a Jew. He's not a Roman citizen. I'll do what I want to him. I'm going to beat him horribly, and he's going to tell me what he's been accused of. Now, as Paul is about to get beaten like this, he asks a question to the soldiers who are going to do that. He says, is it lawful for you to scourge a man who's a Roman citizen and uncondemned? Paul knows the answer to the question is, no, it's not lawful. But he's asking this question to show them, I'm a Roman citizen. I haven't been accused of anything, and you're about to do something that is very illegal in the eyes of Rome. And right when this soldier heard that, he goes to the commander and says, you be real careful what you do to this guy. He's a Roman citizen. And so the commander comes to Paul, all freaked out, and he says, is it true? Are you really a Roman citizen? Paul says, yes. Commander's like, wow, I paid a lot of money to become a Roman citizen. Paul says, I was born a Roman citizen. Now, there's a lot of fear in this commander because even having Paul bound without being accused of a crime and guilty of anything was against the law in the Roman court as well. So even just binding him was something that he shouldn't have done. And so now he's worried because I got this Roman citizen and there's this uproar that's going to happen with the Jews. And so he releases Paul from his bonds, but he still has a problem. He's got to know what the, you know, what is he being accused of? What's going on? I can't beat it out of him, so I got to figure out another way in which to find out what is going on with the accusations against Paul. And so what he does is he gets Paul, he gets the Jewish leaders, he brings them together for the purpose of finding out what they're accusing Paul of so that he can then move forward with how he is going to deal with this. So now Paul is going to get another opportunity to share the gospel. His first opportunity, he shared his testimony. It was going well, but it didn't end well. They want to kill him. They don't listen. Well, now he gets another opportunity. He's standing before the religious leaders. He's going to get to share with them. And let's see how this opportunity pans out. Chapter 23, starting in verse 1, says this. Then Paul, looking earnestly at the council, said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. Notice Paul starts off here making a declaration to these religious leaders. Hey guys, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. And this is important because if you remember back in chapter 21, Paul was accused of four significant crimes uh, by these religious leaders. I'll remind you what they were. Acts 21 verse 28, we're told, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against the people, the law, and this place, referring to the temple. And furthermore, he has also brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. 
So Paul was accused of teaching against Jews, against the law, against the temple, and the most severe of all was bringing a Gentile into the temple. And as we looked at when we looked at Acts chapter 21, he was innocent of all these charges. And so he wants to reiterate that to the religious leaders. Hey, I am an innocent guy here. You know, these charges are unfounded. These are not true. I'm not against these things. I haven't done these things. And I think he's ultimately trying to do this so that he builds that bridge to hopefully now get to share with these religious leaders. But just like last time, things aren't going to go quite as he had hoped. After he shares this, notice what happens in verse 2. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall, for you sit to judge me according to the law, and do you command me to be struck contrary to the law? And those who stood by said, do you revile God's high priest? Then Paul said, I did not know, brethren, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. So Paul starts off, you know, I live in all good conscience before God. I'm not guilty of these crimes, hoping this is going to build this bridge, open this door to share the gospel with them. And right when he says this, the high priest gets angry at Paul, and there's two guys that are standing next to Paul, and he orders them to hit Paul in the face, in the mouth specifically. And Paul responds after getting hit in the mouth. He says, God will strike you, speaking to the high priest, you whitewashed wall. Now, you might be thinking, that's kind of a weird comeback. Why call someone a whitewashed wall? Well, first of all, God will strike you for striking me. But a whitewashed wall, what Paul is ultimately saying is, you're a hypocrite. If you remember Jesus, when he dealt with the religious leaders, he often said things uh, about them, but he did call them the same thing that Paul does. In Matthew 23, verses 27 and 28, it says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs which indeed appear beautifully outwardly, but are inside are full of dead man's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. See, Jesus uses the same thing. Oh, the, the tomb, they would clean it up and make it nice, and so when you visited, it looked great. He says, oh, you're like a whitewashed tomb. Outwardly, you look great. But I know what's inside. It's dead man's bones. You want to outwardly look so spiritual and religious, but inwardly you're dead. And that's ultimately when Paul says this, what he's calling them. You're a hypocrite. But notice what Paul goes on to say. For you sit to judge me according to the law, and you command me to be hit contrary to the law. Hey, you're the high priest, and you're trying to judge me according to the law, but what you just did, having me punched in the face, is contrary to the law. It goes against the law. You see, you weren't allowed in the Jewish law to hit someone or beat someone unless they were found guilty of a crime. Paul hasn't been found guilty of anything yet. And so what this high priest has done is against or contrary to the law. And so Paul is calling him a hypocrite. Now, it would be nice to know if how Paul said these words, you know, because, you know, the, the tone of voice and, and the way in which he communicates this would definitely paint the picture for us a little better, but we don't really know, you know, was it, he gets hit and it's an outburst of anger, God will strike you down, you whitewashed wall, I mean, was that the way that, that Paul did it, or was it more of a, a calm, collective, just straight to him, you know, God's going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. I mean, how did he say it? We, we don't know, and because of that, we kind of don't know how he presented it. If it was out of anger, then even though the statement is true, this guy's a hypocrite, he's still in the wrong for doing it in anger. Well, after Paul rebukes the high priest, 
The guys next to the high priest say, do you revile God's high priest? And then Paul says this, I didn't know, brethren, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now, once again, when Paul says, I didn't know he was the high priest, it would be good to know, how did he say that? Was this kind of a sarcastic statement of, yeah, I didn't know he was the high priest the way he just broke the law having me punched in the face? You know, was he kind of saying it like that? Or was he kind of sincerely like, oh, uh, I didn't know he was the high priest? Now, I want you to remember that um, the Bible reveals some things to us, and most commentators believe that Paul had some really poor eyesight. In certain letters, he says, with large letters I've written, and, and he talks about this eye problem that he has. So some commentators believe that it's very possible that Paul just didn't recognize because his eyes were bad and actually sincerely didn't know this was a high priest. And also remember, it's been 20 years since Paul's been in Jerusalem. So the high priest, you know, obviously over 20 years, he could have changed a little bit the way in which he looked. You know, he might have not been wearing all his fancy garments. So it's possible that Paul sincerely was I don't know, but we don't know. We don't know if this was sarcastic. We don't know if this was a sincere statement, but either way, Paul recognized what he did was wrong, and he apologizes by quoting Exodus twenty-two twenty-eight, which it says, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Even though Paul pretty much for sure didn't respect the high priest as a hypocrite, he needed to respect the position of the high priest, and he recognizes that, and he quotes this uh, Exodus 22, 28 uh, with that reality. Yeah, I personally think that it's very possible, we don't know for sure, but I think it's possible that Paul got angry. You know, he gets punched in the face right after saying, you know what, hey, I haven't done anything wrong, I'm innocent, and then boom, he gets hit in the face. You know, try to put yourself in his situation. You know, you're there, you get this opportunity, you're you're talking to these religious leaders, you tell them, I'm innocent of these crimes, and someone punches you in the face. I mean, how would you respond? Would you respond thinking, I, I could see myself shouting at him, you know, God will strike you, you you know, hypocrite. I mean, I can see myself doing that. I can see myself getting angry if someone did that to me. And so, you know, it wouldn't surprise me at all if that was something that happened here with Paul. But, you know, whether he is guilty of being angry or, or doing this or not, I'm sure all of us have had opportunities where we wanted to share the gospel, where we wanted to be a witness for Christ in front of family or friends or co-workers or whoever it may be, and we blow it. We have this great opportunity. We're seeking to, to you know, do what's right, and all of a sudden something sinful and fleshly comes out, or anger or frustration or whatever it is, and it destroys or hinders that opportunity that we had to be a witness for Christ, to share the gospel, to reach out to that individual you know, as I look back at my Christian life, unfortunately, there have been times in my life where I've done that. I remember a time specifically with my brother. I was in Bible college, and, you know, my brother had just gotten involved in this cult. And, you know, this cult ultimately, you know, was telling him that, hey, you know, we have the, the true hidden meaning of the Bible, and we're the only ones who are truly saved. And so my brother, he did love me, and, you know, he wants to come convert me. And so he tells me, you know, you don't have the hidden meaning, and you're not truly saved like I am. And so, you know, we need to discuss these things. And so I said, okay, fine. You know, I go over to my brother's house, and, you know, he starts bringing me to certain scriptures. Scriptures and, you know, we're looking at them and he's telling me, you know, what he says they mean. And I was like, well, let's look at the context here. And this is clearly not what it's saying. And he's like, well, you're missing the hidden meaning. 
And I'm saying, well, you're missing the clear and obvious meaning. And so we're having this kind of back and forth, you know, debate with one another. And he starts to get really upset. And, you know, now he's speaking louder and louder. And then he starts shouting because, you know, that's definitely what you got to do to get your point across. And so he does this and it's not really changing anything. So I say, you know, why don't you look at some of these verses? And so I brought into some verses that clearly talk about salvation. And it was just obvious of what they're clearly saying. But he just kept saying, well, you're missing the hidden meaning. You're missing the hidden meaning. You know, and I started getting frustrated, you know, and my brother was a very intelligent guy, you know, and I'm just thinking, you know, I finally just shout out, I'm getting angry, like, you're being a complete idiot, you know, and just a side note, if you want someone to, you know, listen to you or, or learn the Bible, calling them a complete idiot usually isn't going to help with that, but my brother gets upset, which was, you know, granted for what I did, throws my Bible, you know, I grab it, pick it up, storm out, slam the door, and leave. Now, I had this opportunity as my brother is, you know, sharing this stuff with me to be a light to him, to be a witness to him, to share truth with him. But because of my sinful, angry response, not only did I not get that opportunity to do that, my brother didn't speak to me again for six months. Uh, about a year later, fortunately, I got to speak with him again. I came much more in humility and love and patience uh, and got to share with him. And he actually left that cult, you know, praise the Lord. But um the reality is, you know, we have some times where we have opportunities to be a witness and a light, and because of our own sin and our own problems that come out, we can oftentimes not be that. So here's Paul, whether he responds in anger or not, he doesn't get the response he wanted. You know, whether it's kind of on him a little bit or not is kind of, I guess, irrelevant at this point in time because he's desperate for these guys to hear the gospel. He's desperate for them to be open to the gospel, and they're not in any way, shape, or form. And so now let's see what happens next. Verse 6. When Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Men and brethren, I'm a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. Concerning the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am being judged. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For Sadducees say that there is no resurrection and no angel or spirit, but the Pharisees confess both. Then there arose a loud outcry. And the scribes and Pharisees' party arose and protested, saying, We find no evil in this man, but if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him, let us not fight against God. Now when there arose a great dissension, the commander, fearing lest Paul might be pulled to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him by force from among them and bring him into the barracks. So as Paul is watching the actions and the attitude of these religious leaders and seeing that they're completely closed off to his message, to the gospel, to anything that he says, he kind of comes up with his own little plan, and he says something that's kind of, you know, clever, I guess you could say. Notice we're told, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and one other part were Pharisees, he cried out something in the council. And this is what he says, Men and brethren... I'm a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee, and concerning the hope of the resurrection of the dead, I'm being judged. That's the reason I'm here is because I believe in the resurrection. Now, something important to understand is there was a huge debate between 
Pharisees and the Sadducees over this issue of the resurrection. There were two different groups of religious leaders within Judaism. The Pharisees believed in the resurrection. They believed in angels. They believed in spirit. You know, the Sadducees denied all of those. The Pharisees were correct because the Bible speaks about all of them. But, you know, there was this big debate going on. Paul, he grew up a Pharisee. He knows that this debate is really central to, you know, these guys and it's a dividing line. And so he takes this opportunity basically to change the focus from him to the resurrection. Hey, I'm a Pharisee. I'm the son of a Pharisee. And the reason that you guys are judging me is because I believe in the resurrection. He just throws that out there because he knows this is going to cause a big debates. You know, this is something that you and I could do with the political climate today. You know, you could be in trouble for something and you could just respond, I'm a Trump supporter and it's because I'm a Trump supporter that this is happening to me. And you would get a bunch of Trump supporters being like, yeah, we're with this guy totally. Or you could say, I'm a Hillary supporter and it's because I'm a Hillary supporter that this is happening. You would get a bunch of Hillary supporters on your side just because, you know, we're in that climate of everyone just wants to kind of get on one side or the other. And so, you know, this is Paul. He recognized there's this issue within these religious groups and he says, I'm a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee, and the reason you're judging me is because of the resurrection. And all of a sudden, notice the Pharisees who wanted to kill Paul. They have a change of heart here, and notice what they say. Uh, we find no evil in Paul. But if a spirit or angel has spoken to him, let us not fight against God. Hey, we're all good with Paul. If he's all about the resurrection and the angels and spirits, wonderful. We're backing him. And obviously the Sadducees are even more angry. And now there's this dissension that rises up between these two groups. And the Roman commander, he's so fearful for Paul's life. He says, you know, they were fearful that they would tear Paul apart. You know, so this is how bad it's getting. So he pulls Paul away from them and takes Paul to the barracks, basically just to protect Paul. Now, I want you to note that the statement that Paul makes in the way in which he tries to get out of this situation by saying, I'm a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee, the reason you guys are ultimately judging me is because of the resurrection. In chapter 24, he regrets that. He actually calls it wrongdoing. He realized, you know, that shouldn't have been the way in which I tried to get out of this. I should have trusted the Lord in this. But so, you know, this isn't something that he was proud of doing. But at the moment, he decided to go for it. And it kind of worked in some regard to get him from not being the focus anymore. But I want you to try and picture how this time now that Paul had in the barracks would have been like. He's had two opportunities Two of the opportunities that he's been waiting years for, that he's been desperate for, he's been wanting to get the opportunity to share the gospel with these Jews in Jerusalem. It finally happens. The first time it starts pretty well. He's sharing this testimony, but it ends very poorly with them not listening, not accepting, wanting to kill him. The second one doesn't even get started. You know, he just kind of goes, hey, I'm innocent of these charges, and then he gets hit in the face. And so, you know, and then he responds and, and possibly anger. And, and so he might be thinking, you know, the second... <laughs> Failure was maybe a little on me with my response to this. And so I want you to kind of think of what that night would have been like for him and how difficult it would have been for him. Imagine how it would feel to work and prepare for something so long, finally get two opportunities to do it, and neither of them go the way that you wanted them to go. You know, for those of you who like football, imagine a field goal kicker who's been practicing all his life, he's kicked thousands of field goals, and now he's in the Super Bowl. It's the last play of the game. He has the opportunity. The score is tied. He's only on the 10-yard line. He's probably in practice kicked thousands of these easy field goals. He goes up, and he misses. 
But it's not over yet because it's gone into overtime, and now in overtime he has another opportunity to win the Super Bowl, the most significant game that I'm sure he's dreamed about winning, and once again he has his opportunity to kick a field goal, and he misses. Imagine how that individual would feel. Man, he's been waiting for this opportunity for so long, he's been practicing for this for so long, and it's on the biggest stage with the most people watching, and he fails twice. Or imagine someone who has a passion for music, playing instruments, singing. They have a huge opportunity. They get to go on. America's got talent, and they're going to show their talent to all America, and they think they're great, and they think they do a great job, and all the judges don't like them and reject them, and their dreams are crushed. How do you think they would feel? I think they'd be devastated. Something that they've invested in practice and, and longed for for so long didn't come to pass. But you know what? For Paul... It would be far worse. And the reason it would be far worse is because this is just a game and this is just music. Paul was dealing with people's eternal lives. He recognizes you are rejecting the one thing that will keep you from hell. You are rejecting the one thing that will give you a relationship with God. And I'm sure that he was just broken by the reality of these Jews in Jerusalem not willing to accept the gospel. How do you think Paul would have felt there in that barracks? Yeah, I'm confident that Paul was very down that night, upset, saddened, saddened for lost opportunities, saddened for the way in which things go, and possibly even blaming himself for a little bit of it. And it's in this situation that we're going to see that Paul meets Jesus, or more importantly, Jesus meets Paul. And I want you to think about this, because like Paul, we often have times where we're down, where we're upset, where we're saddened, for all sorts of different things kind of bring us to that place. Maybe it's because of a loved one who won't accept the gospel, and it breaks our heart because we recognize if they don't get right with Jesus, what that means for them. Or someone, uh, we're down and upset because we lose someone that we love to death. Or we can be down and upset because of a horrible circumstance that we are facing or, or down and upset because we had an opportunity to be a witness for Jesus Christ and we blew it like I did with my brother with anger or other things that come out and, and we're just upset with how things have gone. There are plenty of circumstances and situations that can get us to this place where we're down, we're upset, where we're saddened, where we're full of regret for the things and the way in which they went. But you know, Paul's in this place and I want us to finish taking note of what Jesus does as Paul is in this difficult place, because what Jesus does for Paul is the same thing that he does for us. When we're in those places where we're down, where we're struggling, where we're sad, where we're full of regrets for maybe sinful things that we have done, this is what Jesus does for us. And we're going to teach you three things that I want us to note about Jesus, three things that Jesus does for Paul, and these are three things that Jesus does for us as well. And hopefully these truths about Jesus will encourage you. Let's see the first thing that Jesus does for Paul, verse 11. But the following night the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. As Paul faced possibly one of the worst nights of his life, notice what Jesus does for Paul. We're told that Jesus stood by Paul. 
When Paul was down, when he was upset, when he was sad, and when maybe he was filled with regret, there Jesus was by the side of Paul with him when Paul needed him the most. Yeah, one of the things about Jesus that I think is so important for us to understand and remember, Jesus, before he leaves this earth, he says something to his disciples that I think is very important for us to note. Matthew 28, 20 says, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Hebrews 13, 5, for Jesus himself said, I will never leave you or forsake you. The first thing about Jesus that I want you to take note of, that I want you, if you already know it, just to kind of grab hold of even more this morning, is that Jesus is always with us. No matter what you're going through, no matter what you've done, Jesus is always there with you. You can always count on him to be there with you. You know, I'm sure that all of us have probably experienced somebody leaving us. Somebody forsaking us at some point in time in our lives. And unfortunately, for many of you, this has probably been something that's happened more than once. Maybe a parent walked out on you, left you. Maybe a spouse left you. Maybe a family member left you. Maybe a friend forsook you. You know, we've experienced people leaving us. And because of that, there comes a point where oftentimes we struggle with trusting that anyone will actually stick it out with us, that anyone will stay with us, that anyone will be there for us. And what we need to recognize is Jesus is not like the sinful people in this world who abandon us and forsake us and leave us. He is perfect. He is sinless. He is holy. And he promises you and he promises me that he will never leave us or forsake us. And that is a truth that we need to hold on to, especially in these moments where it's difficult and it's hard and it's dark and it's sad and there's regrets of sin or whatever it may be and we think God's not with me. Yes, He is. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. So as Jesus stood by Paul that night, He also says something to Paul. Nobody says in verse 11, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. Notice that Jesus tells Paul, be of good cheer. You don't tell someone to be of good cheer if they're already cheerful. Paul needed this encouragement. He needed this challenge. He needed this comfort because he wasn't cheerful. And he had good reason not to be cheerful. This was a bad day for Paul. He had these great opportunities to reach people with the gospel, people that he was desperate to see accepted, and they rejected it. They didn't want it. And now he is in this you know, a place where he is just broken and saddened. And the Lord comes to him and says, you know what, Paul? I need to bring you comfort. I need to bring you encouragement. Be of good cheer. Chuck Swindoll, a pastor and author, says this. Only the grace of God can carve a roadway of peace through a person's wilderness of guilt and a coarse river through a desert of despair. You know, I love the fact that in our darkest and most difficult moments, Jesus isn't just there with us. But he's also there to comfort us. He's also there to encourage us. He's also there to help us get through the difficulty that we face. Be of good cheer, Paul, for you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. Notice what he's saying. Paul, you've done a good job. 
Don't be down. Don't be discouraged. It's not up to you to cause these Jews to receive me. It was just up to you to come here and proclaim it. It's up to them to how they're going to respond. Hey, you've testified, and I'm proud of you for testifying of me, and you're not done. This isn't it. And I'm wondering, you know, maybe Paul thought it was. He knew that change and tribulation awaited him in Jerusalem. People kept telling him over and over. He probably thought, maybe this is it. Maybe this is the end for me. Maybe this is when I die. Maybe this is my last opportunity. God says, no, no, no. You've testified here in Jerusalem. Guess what, Paul? i got an even bigger place to go. You're going to Rome. You're going to get to testify of me in Rome as well. I'm not done with you, Paul. Your ministry isn't over yet. The second thing about Jesus that I want you to take note of is that Jesus is our comforter and our encourager. When you are down, when you are upset because of a situation that you're in, recognize Jesus will be there to comfort you. He will be there to encourage you. He will be there to give you what you need as you go through the difficulties that life brings. You know, I'm so grateful for the countless times that Jesus has done this for me. You know, Jenny and I had two miscarriages, and, you know, there was definitely a time that I needed God to comfort and to bring encouragement. You know, ministry has brought a lot of hardships, a lot of difficulties, and there's been numerous times where God has had to come and just bring comfort and bring encouragement through that. My own sinful choices in life have brought me to a place where I had to come to the Lord, and He says, you know what, I forgive you because you've confessed that, and I comfort you in that, and I'm going to now encourage you with the reality that I'm going to still use you. Even though you failed, even though that you sinned, you know what, I'm going to pick you up, and I'm going to use you again. Jesus is our comforter, he's our encourager, and hopefully that blesses us. Hopefully as we recognize that truth, it's something that encourages us this morning. So Jesus meets Paul, he comforts and encourages him on a night where Paul desperately needed it, and he really needs it because things are about to get worse for Paul. You think, well, this is pretty bad. Well, unfortunately for Paul, it's actually going to get even worse. Notice what happens in verse 12. And when it was day, some of the Jews banded together and bound themselves under an oath, saying that they would neither eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. Now there were more than 40 who had formed this conspiracy. They came to the chief priests and elders and said, We have bound ourselves under a great oath that we will eat nothing until we have killed Paul. Now you, therefore, together with the council, suggest to the commander that he be brought down to you tomorrow, as though you were going to make further inquiries concerning him, but we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Well, if things weren't already bad enough for Paul, they'd just gotten worse. He's there, he's in the barracks, he's protected in the barracks, and notice that there are 40 Jews who make this oath, we will not eat and we will not drink until Paul is dead. We are going to kill him, we are making an oath to do it, and they come up with a plan. Hey, you religious leaders... Say to the commander, we need to talk with Paul a little more. And when Paul's on his journey from the barracks to here, the 40 of us will take care of him. We will kill him. We will end this once and for all. And so now Paul's in a dire situation. Let's see what God does. Verse 16. So when Paul's sister's son, or his nephew, heard of their ambush, he went and entered the barracks and told Paul, then Paul called one of the centurions to him and said, Take this young man to the commander, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the commander and said, Paul the prisoner called me to him and asked me to bring this young man to you. He has something to say to you. Then the commander took him by the hand, went aside and asked privately, What is it that you have to tell me? 
And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask that you bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though you were going to inquire more fully about him. But do not yield to them, for more than 40 of them lie in wait for him. Men who have bound themselves by an oath that they will neither eat nor drink till they have killed him, and now they are ready, waiting for the promise from you. So the commander let the young man depart and commanded him, Tell no one that you have revealed these things to me. And he called for two centurions, saying, Prepare 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at the third hour of the night, and provide mounts to set Paul on and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. So the Jews have this plot, 40 guys ready to kill Paul. They've made this oath, we're not going to eat or drink until it happens. But guess what? Paul's nephew overhears it. Paul's nephew somehow gets into the barracks and gets to share this with Paul. Paul says, you know what? Let's tell the commander here, let's tell this guard here. The guard actually listens to what they have to say, and the guard takes this guy to the commander. He gets to share it with the commander, and the commander not only listens, but he believes and he acts upon what Paul's nephew says. He says, prepare 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at the third hour of the night and provide mounts to set Paul on to bring him safely to Felix the governor. The Roman commander is not taking any chances. you got 40 men trying to kill Paul. I'm going to put together 470 men to protect him and make sure that he gets where? He's going to Rome. Notice that, Paul, that God just said, you know what, you're not done, Paul. You're going to testify me in Rome, and now this commander is actually given Paul a protected escort uh, to Rome. So the situation we see here, once again, Jesus delivering Paul. His life's on the line. These guys have made an oath. I'm wondering if they all starved to death, because if they actually kept it, I don't know. But they weren't going to eat or drink until Paul was dead, and you know, Jesus delivers Paul in this wonderful way. And so the third thing I want us to note about Jesus is Jesus is our deliverer. No matter what you're going through, no matter what you're coming against, remember, Jesus can deliver you from it. You know, David was someone who knew what it was like to be up against some difficult odds, some difficult circumstances. King Saul was out to kill him. David was running through the wilderness to for his life. You know, and in that moment of time, when David was hunted, when David was being sought to be killed by a king, he writes this in Psalm 18, 2 and 3 that I think is just a great thing for us to think about. He says this, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my strength and whom I will trust, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghood. I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. So shall I be saved from my enemies. You know, Paul and David, they were both being sought out to be killed. But notice David's response here, which really needs to be our response as we're in these difficulties, as we're in these hardships, and recognizing that we live in a culture that just because we're Christians, we're attacked. And we live in a time where, hey, we have a spiritual attack that's coming against us as well. And when we have faced attacks and difficulties and hardships like David, we need to say, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my strength, in whom I will trust. When you're being attacked, come to the Lord for protection. Come to the Lord for strength. Come to the Lord for deliverance. 
You know, something that's so important for us to realize is there's nothing too big and there's nothing too powerful. There's nothing too difficult for God to deliver you from. It might be too big for you. It might be too powerful for you. It might be too difficult for you or for me. And because of that, sometimes we think, oh, it's too difficult for God. We need to realize nothing's too difficult for God. Nothing's too hard. Nothing's insurmountable. He can deliver us from any circumstance or any situation. And even if he chooses not to deliver us, he promises to be with us and get us through it. And so either way, we're not on our own. Either way, we're not left to, you know, something where it's impossible. God is with us. And he'll either deliver us or he'll get us through it and he'll strengthen us in it. So in this chapter, we see one of Paul's most difficult times in life. But we also see something great about God. That the grace of God can overshadow any guilt within us and the power of God can overcome any plot against us. And the reason that is possible is because of the three wonderful truths that we see here about Jesus. First, he is always with us. Second, he is our comforter and encourager. And third, he is our deliverer. So if you're going through a difficult situation right now, you find yourself in circumstances that are hard, let these things comfort you. Let the Lord's truth that he is with you, that he's there for you, that he will deliver you, that he will help you be a comfort to you in your time. And if you're thinking, you know what, I'm not going through anything like that right now, well, fine. You will in the future. Difficulty comes to all of us, so hold on to these truths and recognize when you do encounter them, Come back to these truths and let them be a comfort to you.